0: You're listening to Artists and Hackers, a show dedicated to the community building and using new digital tools of creation. We talk with programmers, artists, poets, musicians, bot makers, educators, and designers. We're looking at the current palette of art-making tools online and take a critical eye to the history of technology and the internet. We're interested in where we've been and speculative ideas on the future. In 2021, what it means to be an artist working with technology is wide open, and we're here to explore it in detail, especially looking at issues of equity and justice. In today's episode, we're talking about art and activism, tool building, and technology. This episode of Artists and Hackers is supported by Purchase College. I'm joined in the virtual studio today with our audio producer Mimi Charles and coordinator Caleb Stone. Hello.
1: Hello. Hey.
0: In our first episode we talked with artists that build languages as tools and artworks, and in this episode we're talking to artists that make tools as artworks and activism.
1: I think what makes this episode specific is it's about it's kind of about the um the interaction between like active tools for activism and art as symbolic activism. Like that is kind of the thing that we're working with here, right? Like we have people that are building actual tools that do actual things. Then we have people that are building tools that do something that's kind of symbolic. And then we have people that are, that have completely separated those two parts of their practice.
0: Right. I think that's a really good point. And I think what you'll hear is there's these really different approaches and different ways of thinking of the power of art or the power of technology to even comment on social justice as well.
1: Right. So I mean where and if we're talking about a uh, some sort of spectrum between art that is activism, art that is symbolic activism and then art that is symbolic related to activism um Grayson's really falls towards the side of being like actual tools that people that protesters and activists can use.
2: My name is Grayson Earl and I have been bouncing around as a professor visiting adjunct and otherwise And I'm hopefully headed to Academy Schloss Solitude in the fall to be a research fellow for nine months. So just sort of a teacher, artist, activist, something, something in there.
0: (laughs) How did you get into making art? My understanding is that you studied film first and then moved into art and started integrating technology. Do you mind saying what led you to becoming an artist? Yeah,
2: I mean, it's kind of like a funny, I wonder how many new media people feel that they have a bit of a challenging relationship with the, the title of artists. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was a, studying to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be like the next Alfonso Cuaron or something and make like science fiction dystopic films. Um, and then um, kind of ended up uh, through an advisor, an undergrad was like introduced to Hunter college's IMA program. And I started to get like more, interested in documentary filmmaking and they have like this sort of creative nonfiction MFA. That's a basically like a Marxist feminist uh, documentary film program. Um, and then there was kind of discovering that I wasn't a filmmaker <laughs> because I wasn't any good at it. And I didn't have the personality. I think that you need to be able to like to lead essentially and, um, and uh so luckily uh my advisor at Hunter Ricardo Miranda is like a new media artist and he uh, introduced me to arduino and processing and all of this stuff and so ever since then it's been like yeah that's been that's been it for me you know um and i have like a bit of a background in programming so it was easy to to pick up i think um a lot of this stuff but it's yeah it's been like the last basically since I've been in New York, which is like 10
0: years now, sort of practicing this this sort of art. And how did you get involved in making this kind of work of making art as activism?
2: Well, activism has always been a part of my life, much like programming has always been a part of my life, although you know, I wasn't really practicing either of those things super intensely for a while. Um, and I think activism really ramped up for me in when I moved to New York, because shortly after Occupy Wall Street came about. Street, and I was actually there on the first day um, I had seen it as, you know, the first incarnation, which was the image and adbusters, um, and just sort of showed up and uh didn't realize it was gonna turn into this like worldwide uh event, you know uh but that that got me introduced to a lot of interesting people and ideas and you know it's happening alongside grad school um and i ended up uh basically in this crew the illuminator
1: hey mimi didn't you actually see the illuminator in action in the city
3: yeah i actually did um i was in the car with my mom and we were driving on the brooklyn queens expressway and um as we were driving by there were like these words um on a building and when i looked at it i saw it was like i can't breathe and it was like george floyd's last words before he died so i didn't really even know who put it there or how it got there but it was like really emotional seeing it because it just showed like how impactful his death was and how impactful it still is because we're interviewing grayson about it but i had no idea he was the person that was like also behind creating that moment and experience for me in the car.
2: The Illuminator is a video gorilla projection collective, um, but in material terms, we are a group of people with a van and a very powerful projector. Um, So, you know, like a typical classroom projector is something like 2,000 lumens and we have a 12,000 lumen projector. Um, And we tend to use it to project huge protest signs onto the architecture of New York City and uh, actually other places around the world, but typically New York City. And uh, yeah, it basically works as a kind of like, uh, in, in the way that most people don't have the ability to buy up billboard space and stuff like that in a city, it kind of works on behalf of the 99% to help us kind of reclaim the visual environment with our own messaging. And by our own, I mean the working class and you know um, everyone who, who doesn't have that kind of money.
0: Do you ever worry about getting arrested?
2: Well, with the Illuminator we do think about getting arrested and, you know, what the best way to protect ourselves in those situations is. Um, I mean, the first thing that's really important to say in these sorts of discussions is that like privilege operates uh, in all these situations, right? So like when we're projecting um, I'm a white guy. And so it makes a lot more sense for me to interface with the cops, because there's less of a chance of of them like uh, being violent against me, just like statistically, um, than some of my other um, collective mates. And so, you know, it makes sense uh, to like plan that out. And we often do. We're like, OK, uh, you know, it might not be me, but someone in the group is going to be like on police duty. <laughs>
0: You've cited previously the artist Ricardo Dominguez and his project Floodnet. What was that, and how did it influence your approach to making art?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the Electronic Disturbance Theater and Ricardo Dominguez, uh, they created Floodnet, which is some software that uh, people downloaded. They did a performance in 1998 where they asked people to download this software, and everyone that uh, downloaded it could click, you know, start on their computer and um, they all sent these low-level network requests to the World Economic Forum. And by low-level requests, I just mean like a ping, a simple like, hello. So hundreds of thousands of these hello messages going to the World Economic Forum's website at once and it took it offline. Um, and so everyone you know, got a chance to partake in this thing that was only possible uh, with the collective. And so with Ricardo Dominguez's project, it's interesting because he is very obviously an artist. He, you know, like takes that label, uh he's an artist at um UC San Diego um as a faculty member. And so like he he can kind of like claim that, you know. Um and he 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 did that it, on the one hand, you know, he called it performance art. And so therefore it's like in this sort of space where it's okay to to maybe do things you're not normally supposed to do because it's art. And then also he called it, um, a virtual sit in, uh, virtual sit in, which, you know, likens it to a lot of the civil disobedience that was going on in the sixties. Um, and so that's really cool because it gives it grants it a historical meaning. Um, so it connects it to this, you know, practice of protests. Um, and then it also like, Kind of uh, makes people think about the practice of DDoS or hacking differently. Like it kind of includes it into uh, political activism and creative practice.
0: Yeah, that makes me think about your collaborative project, BailBlock, uh, which is described as a cryptocurrency scheme against bail. I'm wondering how did that come to fruition? So
2: we're uh, with BailBlock, we're mining Monero. And so everyone doing this together with BailBlock, we take all of those rewards sell the Monero that we've generated for US dollars, and then use that money to bail people out of jail. Previously, people who were detained in New York City, uh, and now we're working with the Immigrant uh, Bail Fund in Connecticut for people who have been detained by ICE.
0: Wow. And I know more recently, you've been working on speculative tools for workplace protest.
2: Yeah, I'm working on... Among other things, a shoe that sabotages the workplace. I chose the shoe and the word sabotage because they're actually intimately related in the etymology of sabotage, which apparently I found out through my research, um, the word sabotage comes from the French root uh, sabot, which is like a worker's shoe. And they would uh, throw their shoes into the delicate machinery in like the early 1900s or late 1800s um, to stop them from from working when their bosses like wouldn't pay them or whatever they would take their shoes off and they'd throw it into the machines to stop them, and so the project that I'm currently involved in is is to build this shoe that shuts down Wi-Fi networks in an area, and this is kind of a response to like the new the modern workplace, uh, which it, you know in some ways is a misnomer because there are so many workplaces, but when I think about a lot of the recent unionization efforts like. Uh, at vice or uh Kickstarter was actually just successfully unionized. Um they uh they're just like their offices are just these big open rooms with Wi-Fi. And so if you were to shut that down or give someone the ability to shut that down, that gives them significant leverage because you know it's like work is over for the day if no one can get on the Wi-Fi network. Um, and so that's where that idea came from. And then you know it's in a shoe because then for one, it connects it to this idea of like the wooden shoe and the you know early French industrial era, um, but also like uh, it's it's covert. You can walk through the office and no one's going to know that you're shutting down the Wi-Fi, um, which is kind of cool.
0: Well, thanks, Grayson.
1: And something that's really beautiful about Grayson's work that um, I think a lot of artists have struggle um, trying to reckon with is making their useful tools artistic and poetic. Grayson does a really great job of that, like all of his tools and all of his objects that he creates are really rooted in histories of uh, resistance and activism. I love when he talks about the history of the word sabotage and how he used that as inspiration for his shoe.
3: Yeah, completely.
0: I love that, the idea of rooting this very contemporary subversive art practice in the history of labor activism. And maybe now's a good time to introduce our collaborative group, Brian Clifton, Francis Sung, and Sam Levine. Like Grayson, they're also using contemporary technology. Um, They work with machine learning to tackle entrenched structural problems like inequality and systemic racism, and I'll let them introduce themselves.
4: I'm Brian Clifton. So when someone asks me, what do I do? I say, I'm a data scientist. Um, And I specifically also say that I do not make art anymore um, because that was a hat that I used to wear. And I think it's more interesting to like think about the things that I make as not art. So um, if someone asks me if I'm an artist, I usually decline.
5: I'm Francis. So what, what label I apply myself, I guess is something I've, i am um, always struggled with. I think now I use the term researcher just because it's my job title. Um, but yeah, usually some combination of researcher and software developer, something like that.
6: I'm Sam Levine.
5: I usually say I'm an artist and a teacher,
6: but then I don't love saying that I'm an artist. But I just do it anyway. I don't know. I mean, I don't sell art, so, you know. I mean, sometimes I get a little bit of money here and there to make something, but I'm not like a commercial, I mean, I'm not a commercial artist. Um, And then uh, if I have to say anything more specific, I usually clam up, Uh, but sometimes I've been saying that I'm a a conceptual internet artist, but that makes me like cringe super hard. So I try not to say it too much.
0: (laughs) Yes. Can you describe what is White Collar Crime Zones and where the project idea grew from?
6: I mean, I definitely remember Brian sort of initiating the idea of doing some kind of predictive policing, some kind of response to predictive policing. Um, And I guess we should say what predictive policing is also. Right. So predictive policing is just a policing methodology where you uh, create a system to try to predict where and when crime is going to happen based on historical data about where and when crime has already occurred. Um, so you gather all this data about, about where and when crime has occurred, and then you build a system in putting that data to try to predict where things are going to happen in the future. And um, uh, there's a number of companies uh, that make systems like this. And there's a number of police departments all across the world that, that use these systems. Um, so like, and what's, I mean, you know, what's wrong with this, right? Why, why would this be a problem is probably like the next question. Right. And that, you know, there's a pretty um, simple answer, which is just, which is just that uh, the data collected by these police departments, uh, uh, you know, it comes from what we, what really is, uh, you know, historically systemically racist police departments. So uh, predictive policing applications tend to create this like, feedback loop right where they uh they reinforce the idea that uh, particular groups of people need to be policed and they uh lead to situations where communities that are already over policed become even more overpoliced
4: right there, there's no such thing as crime data like that that doesn't exist there are only arrest data or like actions that police officers you know recordings of like interactions with police officers and citizens and so that's that's what that data is. There's, So these systems are not based on crime, they're based on interactions of police in the community. We did
6: some research about what predictive policing apps do. And then we tried to build our own as faithfully as we could. It just like changed what the data set was from you know, quote unquote street crime to, to white collar crime. And Francis was like really largely responsible for that component, that like machine learning component. Francis is an incredible machine learning researcher. Uh, and practitioner. Um, So he figured out like a really like elegant and simple way that was faithful to take the data that we were able to find and to to make a a
5: predictive system using it. If I recall correctly, we found a presentation by Hunch Lab, which is one of the major vendors of of predictive policing systems. Um, And that presentation, I think outlined their model in enough detail that we could basically replicate it um, and yeah and literally just change the data set
4: yeah and one of the fun things about i i wasn't i'm not sure if if it was exactly hunch lab who did this but like a lot of the the predictive policing um, algorithms used a variety of other types of data to improve the predictive power of their their uh, models and and some of them are just absolutely wild, like moon cycles or proximity to like bars or, um, or proximity to public transport. And so we, we included some of that, um, you know, like performance boosting data into our system as well. Um, I don't know, Francis, do you remember any of the other data sources that.
5: Um, I definitely remember the moon one. Um, I can't, That was the one that seemed the most absurd. Um,
0: As in, when you're saying the moon one, some of the predictive policing use that as part of their algorithm. They would use the the cycle of the moon to help inform their predictive policing algorithms.
5: Yeah. And I I think the justification was something like if, if there's a fuller moon, there's more light out. So people are more likely to be outside committing crimes or something like that.
0: That's bizarre. And it points out the absurdities in these models. And your project has been really effective, I think, overall at pointing out the biases and problems of so-called neutral algorithms. I'm curious to hear, now that it's been a while since you created this project, if you think these kinds of works can be effective at dismantling structures of oppression?
4: One of the reasons why I can justify myself working in data science is to learn the tools of data science in order to subvert the problematic parts of data science or, or kind of run counter to the people who, um, whose ethics or politics I disagree with uh, and, and still have, you know, and do it right, you know, like not do it because I, I wanted to learn it, but because it's like the kind of thorough and, and proper way to do it.
6: I'm not sure if it's possible to do that, you know, I'm not, I mean, not, not, I'm not actually responding to what you're saying, Brian, just to sort of more generally speaking, you know, like, like I'm not sure how possible it is. One thing that I do think it, that technique really allows you to do is produce some level of clarity, right. Um, About what, what those tools are actually doing. And, and I think that's really important because they, Frequently those tools, especially technical tools, are so surrounded by uh, their hype, their hype men, you know, um, that it can be really hard to understand what they're actually doing, what their goals are, and 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 who they're really serving. Right. And so when you attempt to like investigate a tool by like say, again, like we'll just talk about predictive policing, because we're already talking about that, it's like by reverse engineering it, you can you can bring a lot of clarity about what it's actually doing uh, to a group of people who might not, who might not be um, aware of it right um and that to me at least is 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 an important function um i'd like to think that you could you can you can like subvert tools and then uh uh enact some kind of um like power shift because of that um uh but i think the jury's still out
5: Yeah, I go I go back and forth. This whole master's tools question is something that I also think a lot about and I go back and forth on a lot. And I think where I'm at with it now is maybe also this kind of um, yes with a lot of caveats and conditions and may, maybe better to say um, those tools can help, but you should be ready to abandon them at any moment um, and you shouldn't trust them. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of where I am right now with that.
0: Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having us. In listening back to this section, I'm thinking about how Sam believes art has the power to clarify. To make clear issues of inequity. Francis holds out hope that artists building tools and technology can subvert power, though he warns us we should be ready to abandon our tools at any moment. And Brian identifies as a former artist and now current data scientist, someone that knows how data works and can wield and deploy data sets. So I was also curious to speak to an artist that's not creating web based interactive work, but whose work seems clearly situated in fine art media. I talked with Anne Hayung an LA-based artist that uses video and sculpture to examine questions around technology, identity, and labor. Like many of the people I've spoken with, Anne wears many hats.
7: I'm Anne Haeyoung. I have been describing myself as an artist, a tech worker, and an organizer.
0: I think I'm curious how you'd say your art practice uh, relates to your organizing work, for example.
7: I have been thinking that of them as somewhat separate like I I don't I I think a, a lot of artists kind of wonder like what is what is art activism and does that mean I'm making posters or I'm I'm making a uh, a video which can then, you know, make somebody show up to a protest or something like that and I feel like that um, is less what it has been for me, at least up until now. It's uh, the, the art that I've been making, I feel like, is a way for me to reflect on and understand um, the, the organizing work, the tech work that I'm doing. And so I feel like art has been a way for me to um, to kind of explore the critical side of technology, which then feeds back into my activism, but it's not necessarily directly like the art I am making is supposed to be um, like leading to XM, this type of change. Um, I think the way that they have intersected more directly in that way is when I have opportunities like this um, or other opportunities to speak to people, whether it's like giving a talk or doing a workshop or whatever. And in those more um, in, and in those settings where you can kind of you know, talk to people one on one after a talk or during a workshop or whatever, then really get people to think differently about uh, work and our relationship to technology and to think more critically about technology. I feel like those opportunities have been um, kind of been like the, the way that my art has been more directly linked to my activism.
0: I'm looking at documentation of your blood batteries series, and I'm reminded of like a lemon or potato clock but I'm also kind of very, maybe vis- viscerally affected by the appearance of these batteries made out of blood with like electrodes, um, in them. Can you, can you say more about that project?
7: Yeah. So that was, um, the inspiration for that was the Korean word for mixed races translates to mixed blood. And there's also this idea in Korean culture of the one blood people. And so thinking about how we use blood as a synonym for kinship, but a lot of the times when we are just because we might share blood with somebody, that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, that we share any sort of meaningful relationship um, with them. So I guess that's kind of what I meant by that question is like what other ways do we create relationships and um, and you know, are there more useful ways of defining ourselves and how we relate to one another? Um, so I also think a lot about the tech industry. as I mentioned, I'm a tech worker or I, or I was a tech worker and so thinking a lot about how, um, you know, when we are putting our identity into technology, It is these large tech companies and these kind of tech giants, people like Elon Musk, who are doing a lot of that defining of how they think about identity and how they want that to be um, put into the technology that they create um, or facilitate the creation of. And so uh, putting this, the the large blood battery that I did was a performance in front of the Tesla Gigafactory out in Sparks, Nevada. Um, That was the first Tesla battery factory. Um, It was or maybe still is the largest square footage building in the world. Um, so it's like this enormous factory. I think it's kind of a, it's a like Testament or um, that's not the right word. Like, a, yeah, I, I feel like it's Elon Musk putting all of his ideas about technology into a physical form. Um, so it seemed like an appropriate place to have that conversation about like what technology is, what like our, how, you know, we create technology and, and how what that means.
0: So hearing about your work as an artist and about your experience as a tech worker, as well as an activist, I'm curious to hear what you think the role of artists and hackers are to work toward issues of justice and equity.
7: I guess as a more, a roundabout way to answer this is like in the tech world for like, you know, part of what I was doing is organizing with other um, white collar tech workers and, 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 but there's only so much you can change within the institution. And I think the art world is the same, that it's the way that it's organized and the way that people make money as artists, purely as artists, if you're selling in a gallery or getting grants from, you know, foundations that might have questionable origins of where their money is coming from. Like, there's only so much you can do. Like we all do exist within this broader, broader system. So I think there are a lot of artists that are finding ways outside that. Like, I think, specifically outside like the gallery system and that way of making money. But, um, but, and I think artists do, I think what I love so much about art is that artists give me a lot of hope of, of creating alternative systems and um, whether it's like of how to exchange work or how to educate one another um, and how to support one another. So I think that in that sense like yes maybe that there there's ways to create art and to inspire others to show them like here's a way that we are um like in community with one another outside of capitalism but there's also the reality that like we do need to somehow make money and so you do need to plug into the system somehow for that
0: that is true you're right well ann thanks for speaking with me today I guess we keep coming back to this issue of art and its ability to make social change and how can it make social change? Can it make social change or can it break down oppression or is it just a tool of structural violence and oppression? Uh, Have your views based off of, you know, speaking to these different people, have your views on on this changed at all?
1: Well, I guess this is what gets interesting when we're talking about art as tools, um, because I think my immediate response to can art make meaningful social change is not necessarily that. I think there are certain instances where it provides a lot of um, visibility to certain issues, but at the end of the day, I'm definitely a person that feels that things that perform actual functions are a lot more useful um, and so we're, when we're getting into this weird gray area where, um, we're talking about art pieces that do something that is kind of symbolic and also kind of useful, um, it gets a bit tricky to answer this question. Um, but at the end of the day, I do think that using technology and using these systems that have been historically used for oppression, um, against themselves and, for building tools for protest and social activism um, is a useful endeavor and can actually provide social change. Whether it will inevitably bring down the man is up for debate, but I do think that they are particularly more useful than making a symbolic work of art.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, the thing about art when it comes to creating social change and, you know, striving for equality is that sometimes it could even just motivate people to push forward for those things, especially like for me, like being a Black woman, like it's very tiring dealing with racism every day. So I think when there's art that kind of motivates you to either do something that's legislative or get involved in a way that isn't artistic, even if it's through coding programs that can help people get money for bail, all of that, I feel like it's still connected in a way. So I don't think one has more importance than the other. I feel like in a way it always can result in a collaborative process and effort that reaches an end goal.
0: Yeah, thank you. One of my goals for the episode had been to explore the many ways that artists and hackers choose to present and act on their own political ideals. And like this can take the form of activist artworks. Um, It can function symbolically, be poetic. It can take the form of direct action where, you know, using one's own power to reveal alternatives to systemic societal problems and issues of race and class. And I'm also thinking about how one can choose a constellation of approaches and actions, creating artwork that poetically speaks to issues of inequity and a work outside of one's own artistic practice on activist goals. Our guests today reflect the range of these approaches, and we'll explore more of these in future episodes. That's our show today. You've been listening to Artists and Hackers. I'm your host, Lee Tussman. Audio production by Mimi Charles and Max Ludlow. Web design and coordination by Caleb Stone. Thank you to Mimi and Caleb for joining me in the studio. Our music today was Idiophone by BioUnit, Further Discovery by Blair Moon, and this is the track Crystals by Xylo Zico. This episode was supported by Purchase College. Thank you to our guests on this episode, Grayson Earl, Brian Clifton, Francis Sung, Sam Levine, and Anne He-Young. You can find episode information and links to all of our guests on our website, artistsandhackers.org. You can find us on Instagram at artistsandhackers and on Twitter as artistshacking. If you liked our show, please let a friend know, and we'd love to hear your feedback on the episode. You can email us at hello at artistsandhackers.org. Thanks so much for listening.